Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word today. We're in a series entitled Conversion, and we're studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and and we're talking about how Jesus changes everything for the one who believes to live in Him. And as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we're we're seeing how we, we need to look and to listen to the one who is our Lord, to remember His righteousness, that He is our righteousness, and convert our lives by faith to walk in obedience with Him. Now, today's topic is uh, no exception, and as we uh, consider this topic today, I want to implore you to listen to all that I have to say today to the very end, because I believe and I hope you will find it helpful and encouraging and most of all, hopeful. Let me go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And I want to read verse 31 and 32, our text for today. Matthew records, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. Matthew presents a teaching here because Jesus is never one to shy away from the hard issues of life. Friends, if there's anything encouraging about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is nothing under heaven that is not touched and directly affected and ultimately redeemable of it. And that is our hope today. Few things are more difficult than the situation that causes and ultimately or subsequently follows divorce. And as we approach this serious topic today, I understand statistically speaking, there's not anybody in the room unaffected by it in some measure, in some manner, and in some way. And so I implore you to hear me today and let us walk through the scriptures And find what God has for each of us today. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Divorce damages and destroys people. But Jesus heals and redeems to restore when we trust to obey him. I want us to see what Jesus teaches. That we might be able to look to him to trust and to obey his righteousness. And I want to do this in a way that helps us not only to understand, but then also to trust. And I want to ask two questions today. The first, to give us understanding of the biblical teaching, and the second, to apply that teaching, that we might all trust Jesus's righteousness as our own. Question number one, what does the Bible teach about divorce. This is where we should begin. What Jesus is talking about here is really 
kind of a summary or a synopsis of a much larger teaching and conversation. And I believe Matthew places it here in his gospel because it's a strategic placement of his addressing or teaching us how Jesus was addressing the hard topics of life. And he refers to the law as he speaks to the crowds at large. And that law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. I want to read that today to help us gain context of what we're talking about. Here's what the law says that's important for us to understand. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, this passage of Scripture sets the context for Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew. And when we study God's law, which, yes, is still valid for us today, hence the whole purpose of this series, the whole idea behind Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and this idea of Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, it is imperative, first of all, to understand what it says and the situation within which it was written. There's a lot of fake news out there today, is there not? And I would implore us that even in the church, there's been fake news too often, as we'll see fake news even in biblical times today. The law addresses divorce from a biblical understanding of marriage. You see, God's teaching on divorce must be set within the larger context of his teaching on marriage, which is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, when he begins by saying, and Adam saw that there was a complementary partner for each of the animals, but for Adam there was none to be found. And so God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He took a rib from his side And he formed from Adam Eve. And then he brought Eve to Adam. And Adam was stunned. He called her woman. And they, the two became one flesh. And the word says, as they leave their family and cleave to one another, God makes them one flesh. And then verse 25, one of my favorite verses in the whole of Bible. And they were naked and they knew no shame. I think that's a beautiful picture, friends, not just for the physical, but for the ultimate picture of being completely exposed and yet there being no shame of life. That's a picture of the gospel, friends, that that we can be fully known and have no shame in who we are whatsoever. You see, 
keeping God's command for marriage is what the law begins with in order to understand how it is addressing this issue. God ordains marriage as his making of two into one between a man and his wife as they leave, sever, that's what that word means, and cleave. It's more than even a chemical reaction. It's a spiritual reaction. You see, the law says that if a man's wife, now we're back to Deuteronomy, if a man's wife finds no favor in his eyes due to some indecency, he could write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, there's a lot of nuances of this that we just don't have time to go into, but we know that in the day in which the law was written, only a man could sign a divorce. Only a man could pursue a divorce. That's not true today. And so one thing we can do is to translate what the law says about the man in that day to anyone who would pursue a divorce today. But those are subsequent issues that aren't, Uh, uh, immediately pending upon our application in any way today other than to say they would be including in this. But what would an indecency be? That's one of the critical issues that we need to look at. You see, indecency is not some reference to a general dislike, but it is a specific reference to some moral or sexual uncleanness, immorality, if you will. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest uh, theologians and preachers of the prior generation, gives three helpful principles of the purpose of this law's writing. In other words, what he says is this is the reason that the law was written in the way that it was. Number one, The law was written in such a way to actually limit divorce to certain causes. In other words, everything is not justification for divorce in the law's eyes. But the law was written written to limit divorce. Number two, any man who thus divorced his wife must give her a bill of divorcement. This was actually in the favor of the woman in that day because without a husband, she had no way to provide for herself. She had no way of her own livelihood. And so this was a setting free of her, if you would. And number three, he would not be allowed to remarry. You see, friends, the law was introduced to control what had gotten out of control and what had been turned into chaos. The law provided boundaries that protected and allowed a way for a woman to continue to pursue a livelihood without a complete public shame and disgrace. When we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we see that this is the very situation Joseph found himself in. That this was the quandary of Joseph when he found out that Mary was pregnant and he knew he had not known her. He was stricken in his heart because of what had taken place. But what else was he to think because she was pregnant and he knew that they had not known each other sexually. And so obviously it doesn't just happen out of thin air, right? Except the Holy Spirit came and said, Joseph, she's pregnant because 
It is of the Spirit of God. And so Joseph, who had deep compassion on her, didn't want to ruin her life before the Spirit spoke to him, wanted to put her away quietly so that she could still have a life, but not one that he would have to to deal with because of the brokenness that had been committed, obviously. And then the Spirit spoke to him, and he understood that this was from God. And so he trusted what he couldn't comprehend and believed and took Mary to be his own wife. And yet he kept her, the Scripture says, without knowing her until the baby had been born. That's faith right there, friends. That's faith. You see, friends, the law was given to guard against the frivolousness of personal whims and preferences and mood swings, if you will. The law was given to make divorce something that was formal and and to give the understanding of the seriousness of it, to, to impress upon the individual who was considering it the solemnness of it. Not something to be undertaken lightly in a moment of passion or whim or only personal preference. It it emphasized the seriousness of marriage. Sometimes the only way to really see how a matter is truly serious is to see the ramifications when it is either avoided or thwarted or, or ultimately broken. And the law makes clear that marriage is serious before God and should never be reduced in how one thinks or acts to damage other people in its dissolution. You see, friends, when we come back to Matthew, which is the text for today, the problem arose, hear me, this is critical in our understanding of the law. The problem arose not because the law was outdated and needed to be updated, The problem arose not because the law was obsolete or wrong. The problem arose because the law was being incorrectly taught and ultimately abused by those who were charged with its handling. The Pharisees and the scribes. You see, the problem is never God's law, friends. It is the false interpretation. It is the lack of desire to understand and comprehend and the wrongful application, specifically in this situation by the Pharisees and by the scribes. And so the problem in the scriptures is not what God said, but how people had come to skew it for their own purposes, their own preferences, and their own desires. Sound familiar? We are not that different. And in some ways, we may argue we've evolved. The law of God teaches us we haven't moved one click closer to his righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes, friends, hear me, had so skewed the law that they were not only providing a way for the brokenness of marriage to be dissolved. They were actually encouraging it so they could profit from it. The happier you make them, the more they will like you. And the more they like you, the more they will enshrine you. And the more they enshrine you, the more you propagate this whole religion 
that you were in the midst of. This is what we see in the midst of the gospel of Matthew. And they were doing this. They were skewing the law by using Moses' words, the giver of the law, if you would, as the very justification for it. The Pharisees and the scribes were propagating a disposable ideology, not only towards marriage, but hear me, towards wives. They, they, were, they were propagating among men that wives were something less than people. Understand why God gave the law because the situation had become so dire and chaotic that, that, that the very leaders of the religious people themselves were propagating women as something less than human and property and that men could treat them any way they wanted to. And so if a man ceased to like his wife, he could just claim that, well, she's unclean and enact the clause to divorce her. And that's not at all why the law was written, as we've already seen. This was never God's desire nor Moses' intent in the law. But the Pharisees and the scribes disregarded God's design for marriage by propagating their own position among the people through encouraging divorce. And friends, disregard for the law and what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing in the first century is made even more poignant when we consider Malachi's words, that last writing of the Old Testament, where it tells us in chapter 2 that the blessing of God had been removed from the people because divorce had become so common among the people, they couldn't experience God's blessing. And why? Because of the priests. Because what was taking place was not just happening among the people, it was being placed upon the people by the very leaders who were charged with the proper handling of God's word. And God said, the reason I can't bless you is because those of you who are leading the people are most guilty of all. Malachi states in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says this, listen, these are hard words. God Hates divorce is the way the New International Version renders it. And literally, the the wording that he uses there, this is important, friends. What God hates is this. He hates the act of the divorce. He hates the one who is committing the act. Literally, it's the one who's doing it. It's the divorcer that God hates because of what it does to people. That that's what he is telling us here. First of all, what it does to those in the marriage, but also those that are associated with the marriage, and ultimately all because of what it says about God's design for marriage. God hates this, friends. Why? Because it runs counter to his will, and what is counter to God's will cannot have God's glory or his blessing upon it. And the people were suffering under this because the priests were perverting God's law. And this is the context that we find ourselves in when we come to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. 
That for hundreds of years, this had just become normal, and yet God, by his prophets, had been decrying for it to change. You see, friends, God hates divorce because in divorce, man attempts to undo what God has done in making two one. And Malachi says, God is the witness to the covenant between a man and a woman in marriage. Friends, hear me with with all the grace and mercy with this situation that I can muster. Divorce doesn't end a marriage. Listen carefully to this. From a biblical perspective, divorce lacerates the covenant promise and leaves mangled the people of that covenant relationship that adultery destroyed as it despises God for what he did in making them one. Friends, divorce from a biblical understanding is the crown of lust jeweled with coveting, with thievery, with adultery and fornication and idolatry of the highest order. So I beg you today to listen And to hear Jesus' words. Because he has for us a, a better righteousness. And friends, listen, as painful as this is. And let me just give you some perspective. For the last 20 years... Never mind the 10 that I was in ministry before that or the lifetime of growing up in a pastor's home prior to that. For the last 20 years, a principal amount of my ministry has been working specifically with people who are walking through, heading into, or coming out of a divorce. I've seen more than I care to count of situations in this. And and I want you to know today there is hope, but listen to me, a better righteousness never comes, regardless of what the law is. But I implore you today in regards to this topic, a better righteousness never comes by misinterpreting the law, by diminishing the law, or by dismissing it. A better righteousness only comes by the one who is the fulfillment of the law. And when I say better righteousness, I mean this. I mean the removal of that guilt, of that shame, of that condemnation, of that weight of of conflict in the spirit. Jesus does not want to leave that on you. But you must seek him. And let him work. Jesus and he alone is our better righteousness. And we walk in him and his righteousness when we hear and believe and receive his teaching for us. You see, Matthew 5, 31 to 32 is not the only, it's not even the most expansive teaching of Jesus on divorce. We would actually find that in Matthew chapter 19. And while we don't have time to go there today, I bring that up to say likely what Matthew is doing here is he's given a summary of the larger teaching in chapter 19. 
19. And so I will make some references to that, beginning in this way, that Jesus responds when the Pharisees uh, uh, challenge him about what is a person to do in regards to divorce. He begins by appealing to the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Verses 5 and 6 in Matthew 19 say this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see what Jesus does, he says, let's understand what God says first. Let's understand what God has done. And from that, let's work it out. You see, according to Jesus, marriage is not just a civil contract. It's not even a sacrament. Or a way to get to God, if you will. Marriage is something in which two persons become one flesh. And so then thinking that they had in some way trapped him, then they said, well, then why, if Moses was God's man for the time, did he allow it? And Jesus says this, verse 8 of Matthew chapter 19, because of the hardness of heart, because of the hardness of heart. Friends, don't ever think. That God forsakes us in our sin. That is not true. And this situation, as much as any other, should remind us that God's love is everlasting. And when we shake our fist and we point our finger at him and we curse his name, his love for us does not end. When we walk away from him and we reject him in any situation or circumstance, he does not cease to love us. Yes, it is true, his love cannot be bestowed upon us. Why? Because we've rejected it. We've refused it. But he has not stopped loving you. So Jesus begins by honoring the law and explaining the situation You see, friends, divorce is rampant because God's design for marriage has not been rightly honored as sacred. God has never commanded anyone to divorce. But that's what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching and propagating and profiting from. But Jesus makes it clear there's only one legitimate justification for divorce And that's unfaithfulness, adultery. Why? Because adultery is the act that breaks the oneness of the marital union. This is fornication in its specific form. And this is Jesus' one allowance for divorce. But we must also understand how is it then that we apply this? Because it's important for us to know, first of all, that Jesus' allowance for divorce is neither a concession for weakness, which is what Moses did, because your hearts are hard, here's a concession, nor is it a command what the Pharisees and the scribes have made it. But Jesus is teaching a principle that maintains the highest honor for God's design of marriage and applies the gospel into the reality of life. Friends, hear me. All divorce, according to Jesus, stems from the hardness of heart. And you do not have to divorce, not even for adultery. That's why Jesus says it's not a command. It's a principle. 
And so as we unpack this principle that Jesus provides today, I implore upon each of us to gain, to glean, and enlarge our own understanding of what God is saying by His Spirit to each one of us, honoring the sanctity of God's design for oneness in marriage. This is Jesus' priority. To glorify the Father by the marriage relationship, by that union of oneness. You don't have to diminish marriage to justify Divorce. That's what Jesus is teaching. This teaching seems extreme, does it not? Especially in light of our times today when more than half of all marriages, both in the church and outside the church, end in divorce. But it only demonstrates how far that it is that we remain from God's perfect holy standard. So we must ask, how then? How, since we are so far from God's holy standard, can we ever hope to satisfy his holy demand? And friends, that's the exact question that we are aiming to answer throughout this series. We cannot and we never will, but Jesus as our righteousness already has. According to God's law, hear me, no one has any hope. And if you find hope in the law, know this. You're the very one that the law condemns. Even if you are morally astute in every way, Romans says there is none that are righteous, not even one. Do not find satisfaction with God by your moral accomplishment in your right standing before the law. None of us. To understand where we stand before God in our self-righteousness or even in our religious righteousness. This is why the law is so important for us. None of us have measured up. Though we may not have failed in one area, the Bible says that if we have digressed from the law in any area, we stand guilty of breaking it all. That's what unrighteousness is all about. Only though, only the law can show all of us that we have absolutely no standing with God. For the law is God's first word in showing his holiness and where we stand before him. But hear me, friends, hear me. We need that first word, but God also has the last word in Jesus Christ. And if you're hearing me today, Don't miss this. The first word helps you know where you are with God. The last word is your hope to be with God. Understanding Jesus' teaching now leads us to our second question for today where we must listen and heed that we might apply Question number two, what does it mean to trust Jesus as our righteousness regarding divorce? I'm going to move fairly quickly through this. It's not something you can necessarily take all in today. That's not my intent. Any of this can be made available for you later, but I want you to listen and hear today. Trusting Jesus' righteousness begins by knowing and applying his word to walk in obedience to him 
in the specific situation of your life. And that's what this question aims to do. First of all, I'll I'll provide three responses to this question that helps us. First of all, we must trust Jesus' righteousness as we honor God, honor first God's design for marriage that he makes two, one flesh. We cannot let go of God's design for marriage when we discuss divorce. And what God makes as one, no person should seek to make into two. This is where we begin, friends. We also recognize that God's will for all is simply this, how two are made into one, and that all sexual activity should be reserved only for the marriage relationship. Why? Because sexual intimacy is the physical act of the making of one that God completes in the soul, the spirit. Sexual intimacy consummates in the flesh the marital union of God making us one. Second, we trust Jesus' righteousness when we understand divorce, what it is, what it does, and what is involved when it occurs, the hardening of heart. Understanding divorce before you have to encounter or deal with it is critical, friends. For learning this lesson when one is weak or even in a wounded state carries a heavy and a near impossible burden. And understanding is the best way to steer away from the allure of its easy promise that is propagated not only today but throughout history. And understanding is is even that when we encounter it, you know what it is so that no matter what got you to it, listen to me, you turn to only the one who can get you through it. And that's Jesus. And third, we trust Jesus' righteousness when we hope in Him alone. First in marriage, but also in divorce. No one gets through or moves on unscathed. Friends, listen to me. You don't deal with the breaking of the law by ignoring it and moving on. The gospel is so quick to remind us of this, and yet that's the way we want to address so much. To ignore and move on only leads to death because that's where the law leads us. No one who can or will hear this message today, though, is without hope in Jesus. You can choose to reject Him as hope, and that's ultimately the fruit of a hard heart to refuse Him. But how well you do or survive How much damage is in you through divorce will be directly dependent upon this. Who you trust as your righteousness. Who you trust as your righteousness. And so I remind us that divorce damages and destroys people. But you don't have to be damaged or destroyed by divorce, friends. Jesus heals. He redeems to restore us when we trust to obey Him. Now, I'll conclude today with pastoral counsel by by applying these three responses to the second question to specific places that we may find ourselves in orientation to divorce. 
by asking the question, how should I apply this teaching if? Look at this. Knowing what's right and what to do can often feel worlds apart, right? I know what is right, but how in the world do I do that? This is the quandary of faith. And I pray that this helps, I pray that it clarifies, and I pray that it encourages because I can tell you there's not a person in the room that Jesus doesn't want to walk away having cleansed because of forgiveness and on the path to healing and full restoration. Friends, sin, though you may not completely forget the sin of your life, you do not have to live with its stain And it is the will of God, according to Psalm 51, it is the will of God that you not live with its stain in your life. How should I apply this teaching then if I've been divorced in my past or if I am struggling through the effects of divorce? Friends, listen to this. Because divorce and the tempter, the accuser, will be the one who wants you to believe something other. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Nor is it the scarlet letter of life. It's not the unforgivable sin, nor is it the scarlet letter sin of life. There is forgiveness. There is, hear me, cleansing. And there is healing in Jesus. But you must seek him and you must trust him in this if you've been divorced and you continue to struggle with it ask yourself this why do I continue to struggle with this and then I would encourage you to deal with what you find in response to that I don't have time to to consider or to address all of the possibilities of that but I want you to know that only getting behind the struggle behind the guilt that you may sense or feel will very quickly lead you number one to either a wrong belief or an unrepentant sin because if you've repented of any sin that the Spirit's convicted you of the guilt you feel is only giving in to the accuser it's not from God God's not the giver of guilt that condemns he brings conviction that leads us to forgiveness and healing deal with that answer seek help if you need to but understand that God wants to forgive and cleanse. Repent as you are convicted by the Holy Spirit and do not dismiss the Holy Spirit's conviction. You, you may have to seek forgiveness from others, but know this, when God forgives you, you are clean and hear me, this is important, you are free. Do not continue to hold over you what God has cleansed you from and released you from. You aren't God. You can't fix this. But you don't get to do something that God's already said, I've done it. If you are the divorcer, in other words, you're the one that pursued that act, as Malachi 2 explains. I want you to hear me. There is still hope in Jesus. He stands ready to forgive and to cleanse if you will turn to him 
for this. That Malachi says God hates divorce does not infer naturally that God hates you as the divorcer. And do not let the evil one put those two things together in you. Because that is a functional rejection of the truth of God in your life. Adultery, I repeat, is not the unforgivable sin. You, friends, are not outside God's power to forgive and to save, to cleanse and to set free. Another question, then, how should I apply this teaching if if I'm considering a divorce now? First of all, let me tell you to reject the shame, the embarrassment, and or the guilt that would tempt you to run away from those who are God's voice, God's counsel to you. Don't do that. Satan wants to isolate you. He wants to put you by yourself so he can get you in a place to steal from you, to destroy you, and to kill you. That's satanic temptation to isolate so he can destroy you. Secondly, not only reject the shame and the embarrassment, but reject the voices of those who encourage you not to seek or to follow biblical counsel. Who, who, would, who would tell you, just hurry up and end it to get done with the pain. Friends, I'm going to tell you, in all of my experience, I've never been to one that says, you know, just because I hurried through it, it made it all better. That's a false hope. Reject those voices. Doing it will not end the pain of it. And understanding and walking through it the right way is the only way to minimize damage, to avoid destruction, to alleviate pain in a healthy God-honoring way, and to labor for healing and restoration throughout the process. Surrender to Jesus by seeking strong biblical counsel for your situation. Submit to that counsel, trusting the people that God has placed in your life as God working in your life. And finally, and I'll finish with this one. How should I apply this teaching if I'm counseling another person on whether or not to get a divorce? Well, I'll say this, depending on their heart posture and their actions, which you can't determine, but you have to discern. First of all, stand on God's word. If they are the ones in sin towards their spouse, if they're the ones committing some form of fornication or adultery, they're the ones cheating, don't make light of God's word thinking you'll win them in the process. What you'll do is convince them that God's word is of little value to them. And if God's word is of little value, not only does the law lose its meaning, but so does the gospel. Stand on God's word. Let them see how their decisions and their actions are tearing relationships and lives apart, hoping and praying that that it will tear their heart up in order to turn from their sin and repentance. Now, this is obviously someone who's living in active sin. I hope you understand that. But the other way to counsel them is if they are not in that active sin, stand with them as well. And if their spouse is acting to press for a divorce, I encourage you to make clear what God's word says and hold out unrelenting hope in Jesus' power. Encourage decisions to be made based on God's word, not the feelings that they have in the moment, not 
the cultural mores or impressions that are being pressed upon there. But hear me, friends, this is important. Let the decision be theirs to make. And here's why that's important. Be very careful not to press them to make any decision hastily. It is not your decision. It is theirs. You do not know what God is doing in their hearts. And as one pastor said in wise counsel, no one but the two who've been behind closed doors know everything that took place in the marriage bedroom. Let the decision be theirs. And when you give counsel to someone heading towards or going through a divorce, be careful to give clear counsel, but refrain from your personal conclusions. It's not your decision, no matter how well you think you understand the situation. They need to hear how they can move forward by trusting in Jesus. So continually remind them how much God loves them, And pray for them, pray with them, and stay near to them. That's the presence of God to remind them of all of these things. It is my heart today that you hear these words with the hope that is only in Christ. Let's pray.